please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, since it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some preach Christ, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you might have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. This is the second week in our series on the book of Philippians, the letter which Paul wrote to the Philippian Christians who were in the city of Philippi. We have not spent a lot of time looking at the background of this letter, but the content in today's passage will require us for a few minutes to explain what has happened. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has taken place has actually worked out for the gospel. What he's referring to is Paul was taken captive or arrested by the Romans after a number of disputes begin to take place in which the Jews attempt to kill him. At one point, a group of, I believe at least 40, it might be more, people have taken a 
vow not to eat food until Paul is killed. And when a boy goes and tells the governor about this plan, he calls for 200 centurions to come and to rescue Paul out of this city because Paul, by birth, was a Roman citizen. It's so interesting to me to look at the life of Paul and see all the wonderful things that the sovereign God has woven into who Paul was called to be. Not only is he a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, he was a Pharisee. But not only was he a Pharisee, he was a Roman citizen by birth. What an amazing juxtaposition in that day. And so because of his privilege as a Roman citizen, he not only testified of Christ in Jerusalem, he then went, because of his imprisonment, having appealed to Caesar for protection, he then is taken as a political refuge slash prisoner and taken to the city of Rome, where he begins to act as a little inside mole, a little virus that has gotten in the system. And so, just to understand the context of what Paul's referring to, I thought it necessary to explain. Paul is writing this letter from prison, and just as we saw last week with his goal, his fatherly, tenderly loving goal of expressing his thanksgiving and heart to these Philippians, here he begins to move towards His desire is to let them know that his suffering has had a great effect, not only for the people, as he says in the imperial guard, not, not only the Romans, but also for the brothers who were in Rome that day. So I want to look at four aspects of what it means to suffer for Jesus. I want to look first at his imprisonment for Christ. That is Paul's time in Roman custody as a means by which God was subverting the Roman Empire. It's a very amazing thing. Later in this book, he refers to it, that there are people in in the household of Caesar who greet the Philippian saints. Do Do you remember in the stories of old where Moses would be uh, considered to be of Pharaoh's descent, like, you know, the daughter of Pharaoh's, uh, the, the son of, of Pharaoh's daughter by adoption. Likewise with Joseph, he arises to the second in command of all of Egypt. Daniel, as we mentioned just a few moments ago, is he rises again to second in command. And now Rome has brought the very object of its destruction right into the center of the city. The irony of this that demonstrates the lordship of Jesus Christ cannot be missed. This was God's design and plan. And so Paul says, I want you to know that this has worked out for my benefit. We're going to look at that in full detail. We're going to look at this very perplexing passage in which he describes preaching that is done in envy and in strife and in rivalry. We're going to look at what it means, what Paul is intending to convey about the importance of purity in preaching the gospel or any such ministry. So often we hear the words preaching and we say, well, I don't preach, I just do one-on-one Bible studies. No, you're preaching. You, you may not have a very large crowd, you may not have uh, this format, but you're doing preaching. You are, you are involved in commending Christ to other people and the importance of doing it in purity. I want to look then at this idea that Paul is giving, just as he explained his thanksgiving in the prior reading from last week, so also here he is making his reasoning process known to the Philippians so they could imitate the way he thought. 
He's expressing his heart's dilemma so that when they face the same dilemma, they are able to reason well. And then finally, he again commends them that they are engaged in the same conflict that he has. And we saw last week how he's addressing saints of God. And we remember from Second Peter, as Second Peter, it begins, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Paul brings his hearers up into the very same battle that he is facing. And so it's therefore important for us to understand these verses, these passages, are not just written to the Philippian Christians. They're written to all the Christians. They're written to us. So Paul desires his hearers understand the necessary outcome of resiliency in the face of suffering. There is guaranteed fruit, as Paul says, based upon his suffering, that it has an intended effect. As we said, God drew Paul to Rome for a specific purpose. He actually at one point said to Paul, don't worry, you won't be killed now, you'll be... Don't worry about that detail. Just as you've preached in Jerusalem, so also you will testify in Rome. What a wonderful thing to hear that you're going to Rome. If you've ever seen any movies on Roman culture, the most common one in our American contemporary setting is Gladiator. And if you know what the city of Rome is about, it, it would be like mixing you know, the Vegas uh, of America with um, some elements of San Francisco and D.C., and also some city that was known for extreme violence. I'm not sure exactly which one on the earth that would be. Chicago, there you go. May the Lord richly bless the saints in those cities. Um, but this is where Paul's going. It, it, would be announced, it would be like announcing, you're going to the heart of Baghdad, and you will have to give a witness for Jesus Christ in the public square. So Paul is saying, I want you to know I want you to understand, I want you to be sure that my suffering has had an intended effect. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. This isn't wishful thinking on Paul's part. You see, Christian trivial kind of baptizing, if you will, I'm using that in a, in a light sense, kind of trying to just sanctify something that's actually terrible is never helpful. There are troubling things that happen to Christians. There are difficult things that happen to people of good faith, people who have not sinned in a way that caused that circumstance. Nevertheless, Paul is saying, I want you to be aware that God is using this suffering for a mighty transformation. I want you to know this. Verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Do you remember what took place at the Lord Jesus' crucifixion? As the Lord was standing there, we hear about it in Mark's gospel, that a centurion stands at his feet and says, surely this was the Son of God. Do you think that Roman centurion had any news for the rest of the Romans that were with him? Do you think that story ever started circulating? It probably made its way back to Rome. Hey, we just killed someone down in that Palestinian territory and something very strange happened. The whole world became dark. The earth shook when he died. And then somebody came and stole his body. We don't know where he is. And so Paul is saying here, there's a 
redoing of what took place in the Lord Jesus' death. There is some news that is being spread around in the imperial guard of the Romans. And to all the rest, that is all the rest in his context, that my imprisonment is for Christ. His unwavering commitment in the, sign, in the face of persecution is a great, indeed it is the greatest sign of two things about the sufficiency or the excellency and the power of Jesus Christ. I want to emphasize two things about Paul's resiliency in the face of persecution. The first thing is that Paul's commitment to Christ despite persecution and suffering absolutely shouts about the glory and joy of knowing Jesus Christ. People do not cling to things that they despise when it becomes hard to cling to them. If Christ was of little repute to Paul, he would have abandoned Christ. And so observers to Paul are noticing, wow, Paul is really convinced that Christ has a benefit, that Jesus Christ is precious, at least to Paul so precious that he can withstand terrible, terrible things. In various parts of the writings of Paul, he enumerates his sufferings. And these sufferings included shipwreck, being whipped three times, 40 lashes, minus one. Can you imagine that? I would probably begin to doubt on lash one or before lash one as I'm waiting for Lash 1. The glory of God was so clear to Paul as he met the Lord Jesus on that road to Damascus and then spent a period of 15 years dwelling upon the beauty of Christ in the scriptures that Paul has so been, become radically convinced of the joy of knowing Jesus. It is not a struggle for Paul. Paul loves the Lord Jesus. And so this suffering and the persecution that come are proving, they're testing Paul's love for Jesus. They're demonstrating it as pure. You know, if anyone ever gives you a, a bar of gold, one of the things that you ever have to do with gold, you have to verify that it's true. And the way that you do that is you try, you see, is this just a layer over a bar of lead? Is this really gold or is there tin mixed in? No, you take the bar of gold and you test it. You try it. If you have the power, you melt it to prove. You weigh it in such a way as you can tell the mass is right. This is what is happening to Paul. He's being put on the scales and he is proving that Jesus is radically joyful. Likewise, Paul's resiliency in the face of opposition points to a source of power far greater than mere human courage. So the suffering that, Paul took, that took place for Paul proved the excellency of knowing Jesus, the joy of loving Jesus, and it proved the power of knowing Jesus because Paul is standing up to Roman imprisonment. You see, our prisons in America, we have cable, we have air conditioning, we have food. Don't get me wrong, American prisons are terrible. But I just want you to rewind the technology tape in your mind and go back to probably he is in a small house with a little bit of freedom to go in and out, but not much. Why? Because the Jews in the entire Roman Empire are trying to kill him. And they know where he lives. They know he's in Rome. So this human courage, which is sustaining, sustaining Paul, is not the chief 
point of his courage. The chief point of his courage, the chief foundation of his courage is the power which comes through Jesus Christ. Likewise, or further than that, the effect of Paul's suffering has had a great effect on the imperial guard, but not only on the unbelievers, but also those who are in the household of faith. Verse 14, and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. You see, without Paul's imprisonment, these brothers would not have become more confident in the Lord. They are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Those disciples with him faced the same opposition from the Jews as Paul did. Paul was the chief point of their attack because he was a former Pharisee. Remember when Lazarus was raised from the dead, they tried not only to refute Jesus Christ by killing him, it says in John's gospel, they also made a plan to kill Lazarus. So Paul being a convert from being a persecutor of the Christians to now being a Christian, he is, he is uh, you know, the enemy of the state, if you will, for the Jewish nation. They consider him to be the most important thing to remove from the world. Seeing his example, these brothers now reason as such, if Christ is precious to and powerful for Paul, he will be with me as well. If Christ is sufficient to Paul such that Paul can endure imprisonment and not renounce Christ and also have the power to be sustained in the light of shipwreck and scourging and opposition and riots in cities, if he is that powerful for Paul, I can certainly stand. That's, that's how they're reasoning. He says, I want you to know these things. I want you to be sure of the intended effect that God has done. Paul's desire is that the Philippians would think like he is thinking, that they would observe what has taken place. Paul's desire for his hearers was that they would be sure of the fruit of suffering, and we ourselves must likewise observe in order that we would be able to persevere. We have to notice what's going on. God has two wonderful, glorious purposes to transform the opinion of the unbelievers in the imperial guard and the rest of those in Caesar's house and also for the brothers with Paul, part, part of Paul's team and the other Christians who were in the city of Rome, that they would both be benefited by Paul's imprisonment. He wants them to be sure of that. So, unless we ourselves are certain of a sure harvest of the good fruits of suffering, we can never endure persecution. Unless you know that God is able, willing, and desiring to use your suffering to glorify Jesus Christ, to make Jesus Christ seem and, and be presented as loving and joyful and precious and worth it, unless you know those things, you cannot endure suffering. Why? Because you believe there's no purpose to it. It's kind of like with working out. You endure pain for a intended benefit after the workout. You don't get rewarded in the midst of the workout, right? Same thing with work throughout your day. You work in such a way as you observe a future reward. And Paul is saying here that Christ is having an effect in my suffering. I want you to know, brothers, my suffering has had a really great effect for the advance of the gospel. 
So desiring the good fruits of his imprisonment, Paul then explains yet another aspect of his suffering. He says that the brothers have become more bold, but they've become more bold in two ways. Some of them have become bold seeking to make a selfish use of the opportunity. Others have become more bold in a good and godly way. Not only is he oppressed by the Jews and held in prison by the Romans, but even some of his brothers add salt to his wounds. I want you to notice that Paul uses no caveats to describe what they are preaching or who these brothers are. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The later do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now we know that Paul has within his theological wheelhouse terms like another Christ. If anyone comes to you and preaches another Christ, let him be raised up to God. Let him be anathema. Here he does not say they are preaching another Christ, but they are preaching Christ in another way. And it's important that we see Paul wants his hearers to know that there is a way of preaching Christ that is not commendable. And there is a way of preaching Christ which is. Those here who preached in pretense were truly brothers. The, the reference for these Others, he uses a a phrase, others, it points back to the brothers who became more bold. And so he is saying that there are some brothers who are adding salt to my wounds. They're truly brothers, but they're not preaching Christ in a commendable way. Why does Paul therefore say that they were desiring to afflict him? I can think of two to three things. First, there is a great honor that attends the preaching of the gospel. It is right that we understand this because unless we understand this, we will never see the temptation present in preaching the gospel. Those who do well as elders are worthy of double honor, as Paul wrote to Timothy. There is a right and good honor that attends with preaching in the gospel. Those who serve the church as deacons, Paul says in Timothy that they earn for themselves a good standing. Likewise, in the book of Galatians, he says it is always good to be regarded as commendable for a good purpose. He says, those Jews who are telling you to circumcise your flesh in order to be justified with God, those people are wanting you to make much of them. And then he says, then he says, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, for a zealous purpose. It is a wonderful thing when God gives zealous examples of preaching and Christian witness to a church. That's what he's doing through Paul. But here these brothers are seeking the gift, but they're not seeking the benefit of those they're preaching to. These brothers mistakenly assumed that Paul was like them in this sense, that they were approving of and even desiring the praise of man. You see, as we seek to do noble things in the Christian life, there are often secondary and tertiary motives which must be crucified. That is why Paul includes this phrase. He wants the Philippians to know that there is always a snake trying to get into the garden. There is always a temptation, even in the midst of seeking to do a noble and good thing. 
By their preaching, these people, these true brothers who are preaching in a false way, they are desiring to provoke Paul to jealousy, being that he was in prison, but they are at liberty. And I even believe that there's a subtle implication potentially of what they're doing here. They're going and preaching around boldly, and they're not being arrested. So Paul must have done something else, because he didn't just get arrested for preaching Christ, otherwise we would be arrested too. I think that mixture of motive is possibly there. Through their striving, these brothers who preach Christ out of envy would be seen as extremely fruitful and extremely blessed of God, but Paul here is sidelined and stopped from preaching. But truly, the end of all godly ministry is love from a pure heart. This is what he tells Timothy at the beginning of his pastoral heart letter to Timothy as as a wonderful spiritual father to his spiritual son. He says, the aim of our charge, the aim of the Christian faith is love from a pure heart. That is the goal of Christian activity, Christian ministry. Paul's mode as he preached was to work for the joy of the people who he was reaching, not for the honor or credit which he himself is gained. In fact, he says that in this very same passage, I am working with you for your joy. I'm working with you for the joy of your faith that you would see and savor Jesus Christ. His desire, Paul's desire, was always to point out the way of love, not the way of selfish gain. So Paul's desire is that Christ would be glorified and that through the glorification of Jesus Christ, some would be saved. The aim of Christian preaching is never just salvation. That may sound strange to some of you. The aim of Christian preaching, the aim of expositing the word, is to glorify Jesus Christ. And in so glorifying, the Spirit may perhaps woo some of the hearers in order that they would have their eyes opened and their ears unstopped, that they too would see and savor the Lord. What then, only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Do you see why I'm so definite on the understanding that these people are not preaching another Christ? They were preaching Jesus, but they were preaching with a mixture of motive. Was their doctrine pure? Yes. Their doctrine was pure enough that Paul could say Christ is being preached, not another Christ. Were their motives wrong? Absolutely. Their motives had a mixture, a mixture that could not remain if they were to glorify God totally. Therefore, as we who fall under the same temptation, we must be aware that subtle temptations always exist in the Christian life, even and sometimes especially when we are doing good things. That is, if, if we didn't understand the nature of our adversary, it would, it would come as a surprise that that's true. But we're not supposed to be ignorant of the devil's schemes. He always wants to glorify the flesh. And so any chance that he can, he'll try to subtly tempt our hearts towards doing good things for the wrong reason. That's what Paul here is warning his people about. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, he gives a qualification for elders. He says, they must not be recent converts that they might not fall into the trap of Satan, that they might not be puffed up. Why does he say that they, might not, that they can't be 
recent converts, it's because only after walking with Christ for a good amount of time can you see these sorts of things. That is to say, when you're first converted to Christ and you begin to take walking steps towards the Lord and working out your sanctification, you do begin to put to death sins, sins that are very clear from the flesh, whether it's anger, jealousy, lust, drunkenness, these sorts of sins which are the fruit on the tree. But then you have to begin to understand there are also leaves to that tree. And what really matters is cutting out the root. And here he's saying pride has swept in to these brothers who are true brothers preaching a true doctrine but in an impure way. This is why we always need to be circumspect as we walk out the faith. One of the most insidious and tolerable sins within the church is making a showing of godliness while doing it to be respected in the church. There is always a danger in godliness that is not pure in motive. So, nevertheless, not even the sin of pride escapes the eyes of the Lord. Again, going back to 1 Timothy, Paul says that there are some sins which are uh, they're very clear. They're perspicuous. They, they can be seen quickly and easily, and other sins come to light later. And he says, nevertheless, they'll be exposed on that day. So Paul knows this struggle. He knows this struggle that is a real temptation to the Philippians. And so he then moves from this warning about false preaching or false motive in preaching to going on and explaining how he, in his imprisonment, is thinking about what he is desiring to do for his life. He knows that the Philippian saints have a struggle to endure And therefore, he is, as again, a loving father, as a wonderful spiritual leader, he is showing the Philippians the internal processes of his heart and mind so that they would be able to reason well with him. First, he encourages the Philippians that their prayers on his behalf are going to be used by God for his deliverance. During the Sunday school hour, Andy mentioned the great glories of preaching excuse me, of praying. And the glories which attend praying are so wonderfully presented in this verse. If you see what Paul is saying, it boggles the mind of what he is actually saying. Verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ. The word and there is mightily powerful. It equates these two things, not in worth, or in the eternal nature of their power, but in the way that God uses them. He says that your prayers and the help of the Spirit are going to be used by God, turning it out for his deliverance. Verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. These prayers, the prayers of the Philippian saints, are not empty, vain statements. When Christian believers pray, they do not come together as a piety-encouraging experience. When Christian believers pray, they are not speaking words into the air which fall to the ground. Samuel was a prophet who, it says of his words, none of them fell to the ground. This is what Christian prayers, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful as it is working. These prayers are transforming the circumstance of Paul's life. They are having an intended effect for Paul. 
that God himself is using these prayers to cause to come into being things which would not otherwise come into being. When the Philippians pray, God uses those prayers to produce real results in Paul's life. I want to read you a quote, just as I cannot do Sinclair Ferguson's voice, I can't do John Piper's enthusiasm. Um, We don't have a big enough room with enough echo to achieve the effect. We will soon. He said in a sermon entitled, Pray Like This, Hallowed Be Thy Name, Hallowed Be Your Name, he said, it is simply staggering that God, the sovereign ruler of the universe, would ordain that prayers cause things. Prayers cause things to happen that would not happen if you didn't pray. And then he goes on in that sermon, he says, I can see some of you Calvinists are squirming. The point is that God, the sovereign ruler of the universe, has foreordained all things and knows what will take place. That never excuses us from praying. Because in his foreordaining of those things, he has decided, again, referring to Piper's teaching, to fold your prayers into the causality of bringing those things to pass. And therefore, to not avail yourselves of that privilege as he says again, I've got that passage of that sermon memorized, is folly of the highest degree. To not avail yourselves of the privilege of addressing the king of the universe to cause things to take place is folly. It's foolish. When we pray, eternal destinies change. And therefore, Paul says, I want you to know your prayers are being mixed with the help that comes through the Holy Spirit. And that is going to work out for my release. The second thing he does here in this section is he demonstrates the mind of Christ. He commends the glory and privilege of prayer. He wants them to know that they are having an effect on him. And now he demonstrates the mind of Christ, which does not seek its own benefit, but theirs. His hope is that he will not fall under the sentence of death, but even if he did, he would die in such a way as to glorify Christ. And the question has to be asked, how do you die in such a way as to glorify Christ? Verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I uh, I shall choose, I cannot tell. Verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. The dying which glorifies Christ, therefore, is not merely spiritual resolve. When you hear these stories of people in the Reformed church, as the church was being persecuted from within and from without, when they go to the stake, they're about to be burned. The resolve which they have can come from nothing other than understanding the eternal purpose of their mission and being radically aided by the Holy Spirit in the moment not to recant. Nevertheless, the glorifying of Jesus Christ that takes place at one's death is not merely resolve to not recant. It is also the desire to be with Jesus Christ, the desire which trumps the pain of the suffering or manner of death that one will face. It is the heart which eagerly desires to receive the eternal reward of being with Christ, beholding him, knowing him, dwelling in his presence and favor forever. 
And so Paul says to die is gain. He sees a reward which is on the other side of the veil, which will never be taken from him and far surpasses even the glory of continuing to be a mighty apostle for the sake of Christ's church. To be present with the Lord forever, dwelling in his favor, is so excellent, words cannot tell. We hear again in Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians, he says of himself, referring to himself, I know of a man who was taken up into the third heaven. He has seen things that cannot be uttered. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. He had an experience with the understanding of what the, the glories of what he was to receive in such a way as he came back from that experience and was not able to express. You may know of a song. We don't sing it yet at the church. One day we might sing it. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. You know, a thousand isn't enough. You need a thousand and one. And then when you get to that, it's, we sing another song, which is wonderful, um, uh, Crown Him With Many Crowns. There's a place in that song that describes the glory of Jesus Christ with the wonderfully precious words. You cannot use simpler words to explain this effect, that Christ is ineffably sublime. It cannot be expressed. It's ineffable. It's unable to be said how precious and supreme and glorious Jesus Christ is. And so Paul understands, if I die, I get that reward instantly. I will be with the Lord, present at home with him. And so he demonstrates the mind of Christ because he says, even though I have this amazing reward waiting for me, I know what I'm going to do. Though Paul is so clearly desiring to depart, he voluntarily, for the sake of love, chooses to be at peace with patient waiting until God should decide and take him. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is much more necessary on your account. Unless you understand what Paul is waiting for, this verse makes no impression upon you. He is understanding an eternal reward which will never fade or be taken away. He will know his maker. He will look with his eyes upon his redeemer and he will never be cast out of the presence of Christ. And yet he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the rest of my remaining life and work for you. I'm going to be like Christ for you. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all For what purpose? So that Paul would become one of these great preachers, like these envious and striving rivalrous preachers? No, I'm working for your joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. They glorify Jesus Christ when they see Paul return, even though they know the chief glory and privilege and prize that is awaiting Paul. Paul stayed. He didn't leave us. He worked with us. Knowing the spiritual dangers which still attend the Philippians, Paul then moves to commend them that they would live lives of purity so that they would not be disqualified or or ashamed. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that of God. Do you see how the battle in the Philippians in this verse mirrors the battle in Paul? 
He says, if you live in such a way that you're not frightened by your opponents, you testify to them, you give them a sign, they are on the wrong side of Jesus Christ. And unless they repent and turn to him, on that day they will be judged with everlasting wrath of their destruction. Paul is not afraid to explain clearly the dangers which are coming to those who do not love Jesus Christ. But here he says, not only of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Just like Paul having a resiliency which comes not from his own human effort, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit, likewise the Philippians are supposed to persevere in a way that testifies to something around them, to the outsiders. Just as with Paul's resiliency, the Philippians' lack of fear testifies to God's preservation. And if he preserves them, he will repay those who oppress them. Finally, Paul again extends the blessing of camaraderie, showing their struggle to be the same as his. I go back again to Second Peter, to those who have obtained a faith like ours, with equal standing of the apostles. He then brings the Philippians up into the same battle that he faces. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you. Who granted it? God granted it to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. So we too, like the Philippians, have been brought into a conflict That conflict in this day is not brought on by Jewish persecution or Roman imprisonment or or any such thing that were the circumstances around Paul and around the Philippians. But the conflict that you and I are engaged in, in clinging to Jesus Christ, it's the same conflict. It's the same battle. And in fact, in some places and at some times, it will erupt to the level of strife and persecution that they faced. It will. All those who wish to live a life of godliness will suffer, period. End of story. If we are to emerge from this battle undeterred, the spiritual battle which all Christians face, whether it be external persecution or the daily necessity of putting to death the flesh, we must likewise have the perspective that Paul had. We have to take that mindset, which is the Spirit of Christ, it's produced by the Spirit of Christ, and we have to take that mindset and have it become ours. We have to set our mind upon the things of the Spirit. I wanted to do this, even though it's not in my notes, I want to just take one or two minutes, three to five minutes. <laughs> Thou shalt not bear false witness. I'm, you don't, please do not turn there. Just listen to the promises given by Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. What an amazing statement. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. This is perhaps my favorite promise in the scriptures. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Do you know your creator made you to get that stone? Now what that is, I have no idea, but I want it. (laughs) I think it is a term of endearment which 
is given to the saint by his God. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father. If you know Psalm 2, that seems like a blasphemous promise, because Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the the anointed one that God sets on his holy hill, he has the rod of iron and breaks the nations into pieces. And he just said, if you conquer, you get to do that with him. And then he goes on to say, and I will give him the morning star. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The idea that enters into your heart when you think the Lord Jesus is going to utter John Weiss if I persevere to the end. That is what you have to know if you are going to face the sort of persecution that Paul and the Philippians faced and not be deterred. I want these things. I don't want them as much as I should, but I want these things and I want you to want them too. Because you have kept my word about my patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth to try those who dwell on the earth. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven and my own name. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Again, if it was not the clear scripture, that would sound blasphemous, would it not? The idea that we will participate with Jesus Christ in the reign over the nations, that we will get to be on a throne, which in just a few short chapters is the center of honor and worship, not saying that we will be worshiped by the angels and the saints. We indeed will be part of that wonderful company who are captivated and in awe of and glorying Jesus in, glorying in Jesus Christ. But the idea that that privilege would be ours, that those who conquer would be given those sorts of promises. Uh, another one for you elders, First Peter 5, when the chief shepherd appears, he will give you an unfading crown of glory. Unless you know that, you cannot face the sorts of temptations and trials. You cannot defeat sin unless you have a superior promise which enables you to have your affections set upon the reward so that you can withstand temporary suffering. And that is the way by which the Holy Spirit supplies spiritual energy in the moment of temptation. He gives you perspective to look forward to knowing Christ. All of these wonderful things, the stone, the, the eating of the hidden manna, the going out and being, going into the temple of God and becoming a pillar, I don't necessarily believe that those are physical realities or, or any such thing in which we have to cling to them. I believe that those are some description that is an aspect of knowing Christ and being enamored with Christ and glorifying in Jesus Christ. Seeing Jesus as radically joyful and sufficient and desirable and friendly and amiable. That is what I believe Paul is telling these Philippians to do. Make your manner of life worthy of your calling. And the way that I think he's commending them to do that is that they would meditate upon their eternal reward. 
So only by understanding the glory of our eternal reward with Christ can we be willing to suffer for his sake. And as we suffer for his sake, we serve as living witnesses of his grace to our neighbors, both the unbelieving and the brothers who are with us. Let's close. Lord, we do ask that you would do a great work in us. We, we confess, Lord Jesus, that we do not rightly meditate upon our privileges. Lord, we, we are so thankful for deliverance from suffering, from, from wrath, from eternal punishment. We are so happy with the aspect to which you have called us, this wonderful calling. But Lord, we ask you by your spirit, would you come now and elevate our gaze? Would you elevate our eyes to look forward to what we have been given in you? We pray that we would take your word and that we would use it as promises by which we would defeat temptation, specifically the temptation to be afraid of persecution, to be squirming away from terrible situations and not enduring through them by the grace which you supply. Lord, we ask you that you would so make our destiny true and real to us that it would be the great energy by which we pursue you and struggle against sin and put to death that which is earthly within us. We pray, Lord, that you would lift our perspective and that you would, like Paul, that to us you would allow us to take the sort of heart that would love our neighbors by staying and suffering so that they could be benefited. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.